Blog Talk Radio. Depending on where you are, you are tuned into Blog Talk Radio and The Mind Whisperer. My name is Michael Gordon, and Happy New Year to everybody out there. It is January 1st, 2013. I hope this beautiful day is a positive, uh, forward-looking day for everybody. And uh, it's the first show of the new year. And I'm very excited to share today's topic with you, and hopefully... uh, We'll get some callers and have some lively chat and discussion on, uh, once again, a, a, a provocative topic today. I'm trying to make this show as, as interesting and interactive and uh, topical and practical and accessible as possible. So um, at any time, you know, I welcome callers to, to as happened the last episode, uh, you know, we had an impromptu caller and um, brought in a topic that was completely off of what we were discussing and it was great and it makes for you know a, a, a more enjoyable show so the number to call is 347-945-7891 and if you go to uh the the link at the mind whisper on blogtalkradio.com uh you'll be able to tune in live to the show today and if you're listening uh to the archive program uh, welcome a pleasure to have you here and uh hope you enjoy uh the program as it unfolds today so today's topic, again in a timely fashion, is why resolutions fail and how to really change your life. Now, this is going to be a positive topic, I promise you. Um, but, but as everything in the show, which you know, the aim is to be truthful and to be pragmatic and to help you and give you new tools and insights uh, in your daily life. Now, one very obvious thing is that. With New Year's, uh, people tend to lay out grandiose plans to completely change their lives and their patterns, and et cetera, et cetera. And those are all very well-intentioned, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's terrific that people see that um, path as you know, something positive and proactive for themselves. Uh, one slight obvious irony about that, for example, today being what it is, is people make New Year's resolutions, and today is New Year's Day, and they've been out partying last night, and so today is not really the first day that they're going to put it into action. Now, they may be kind of honest with themselves about that and say, okay, well, I'm going to give myself one day grace, but it does kind of illustrate a point, which is that uh, it's very difficult to set intentions and, and to follow through in a determined way because what happens is we kind of get bushwhacked by, you know, other needs. And we are, you know, experiential creatures. And if we wake up not feeling well and our habit is to, I'm going to use that word a lot today, is to fall back on um, old patterns, then those are what are going to predominate. And we'll come back and explore that 
very issue of habits um, in short order here because it's it's very pertinent to today's topic. But lest I forget, I want to raise a really interesting point just about the idea of New Year's and setting change in our lives and, and from a sort of an orientating point of view as opposed to nuts and bolts. I mean, I was having a discussion with uh, a friend last night and she very astutely pointed out that there's kind of a childlike or childish um, way of looking at New Year's, that somehow 2012 is over, yuck, I don't want that anymore, I'm going to wipe the slate clean and start brand new. And it's sort of negating the past and, and looking to you know, transform everything going forward. Now again, that's well-intentioned, but I think it was very insightful of her to point out that, that that is kind of like a childlike way of looking at things. And childlike in the sense of um, the limitations of, you know, outlook and cognitive ability and of, you know, what, what we're, our brain is like in early development. And we tend to see the world in very binary terms, black or white. It's either good or bad. Everything's all either perfect or it's all falling apart. So I think that's a good sort of starting point to look at the way that we approach change and the way we approach challenges in our lives is we tend to think, okay, I'm going to sort this all out right now. And it's not a very realistic um, or helpful way to approach making change in your life. And I am going to very shortly uh, get into some research about that that's quite fascinating, very well, uh, recent research uh, that that empirically backs up why that's happening. But from a kind of more spiritual point of view, if you will, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to use that word because people think it's woo-woo or religious, but spiritual in the sense that we're looking at matters that, uh, as the term in psychology is transpersonal psychology, transcend uh, our the workings of our own mind, so to speak, in a, in a psychological sense and, and extend out into our orientation, our, our engagement with the world and in daily terms and, and how we see ourselves in the world and the universe in, in terms of mortality and all those big questions and what, our, what we spend our time doing here. Those to me are what spiritual matters are about and how we relate to other beings and uh, our morals and ethics, obviously. So as an orienting principle, to look at making change as somehow all or nothing uh, with an with an overriding sense of um, almost kind of destructiveness is is not a helpful way to approach putting things in place. Partly because if we are putting that pressure on ourselves, then that's going to define our relationship with other people, and it's really coming back to the judgment and correctness and perfection. And perfection is the enemy of, as someone very wisely said, uh, being perfectly good. So my preference is to say every day can have a quality of being a New Year's Day in the sense that you're not waiting for an opportunity to change. You're not setting, we're not setting ourselves up with a auspicious date that suddenly everything is going to transform our world, that we are transforming our world all, our, all the time in choice. And when you hear the word karma, for example... What karma uh, relates to uh, from uh, the Buddhist texts, 
and Hinduism is karma is not about fate at all. It, it's it's more about apropos of today's topic. It's more about choice and the choices that you make going forward. So if we look at our lives and the things that are challenging us and that have you know have been obstacles or that we want to overcome, it's all about approaching it from a choice point. And that gives us enormous freedom and it takes the burden off of this gigantic determination we've set out for ourselves and this task, you know, this sort of Sisyphean or Herculean effort to, you know, push that rock up the hill or break our world down, which is again has a destructive quality with ourselves. So I just wanted to start off with that kind of approach and say that, you know, every opportunity you have in your daily life isn't uh, or every, I should say, every choice point you have in your in your daily life is an opportunity to visit that New Year's Day uh, approach, if you will. Um, and that, to me, is my, you know, to me, the most important guiding principle in my life, and certainly to the people that uh, I come into contact with. I, I hope it's it's a positive influence. Um, I only, you know, fully take responsibility for myself, which is hard enough. Um, but that is my guiding principle is uh, to look at everything as being a responsibility on me and the choice that I make and what I attract into my life and um, what I want to do with it. So again, another saying that I think is terrific is it's not what happens, it's it's how you respond. And that really puts you in the driver's seat as you go about your life that Life is something that's unfolding that you're participating in rather than something that's happening to you. All right, so here we are. We're taking a more engaged, proactive, participatory role in our world, in the universe, rather than being victim to it or that it's something passively happening to us. How do we make that work? And why is it that resolutions don't last? They, they, they fail and leave us sort of stranded back with our original relationship with ourselves, which is, ah, oh, crap, I don't like this, and I want to change this, and why is it not changing, and I hate myself. We've all been there. And for some people, it's a week after New Year's. For some people, it's three months. And maybe it's just the next year, you revisit the year that's gone by and say, that didn't work for me. So as we do on this program, we're going to tie together some physiology, some brain anatomy stuff, and, you know, mind and brain mind being consciousness and our experience and our awareness of ourselves and brain being the physiology of our that organ between our ears and how research is teaching us more about how that functions in terms of uh, consciousness and our, and our ability to make clear choices and to be in control. When it comes to willpower, so there's something very interesting that I mentioned has come up in recent research, and that is there is a difference between willpower or willfulness and willingness. And what I want to say before I get into that research is that that distinction is very important. There's essentially the part of our brain, which is the the prefrontal cortex, which controls what's called impulse control, your your ability to make choices in the moment, is dependent on a, a real global network of activity in your brain. It's not just a singular function of rational control or thought. And But it is... Predominantly, when we're aware of making a choice, first of all, we have to be calm enough and present enough and not distracted by life-threatening situations. But when we're in that place, place where we're aware of 
contemplating different choices and how to make the best choice. It's still very much a conscious process in terms of mind and brain function. And willpower, therefore, is something that's at the forefront of our brain and our, our attention. But it is a very short-term process, as opposed to 70 or upwards of 70% of our uh, consciousness, which is occurring in the subconscious mind and the subconscious organs of the brain, and which is where patterns are housed. Our, our previous experiences and our behaviors are kind of locked in. So the problem is that willpower works in the short term. When we uh, want to, you know, resist that cupcake or, um, you know, go to the gym instead of going to the pub with our friend after work or whatever it is, it will work in the short term. But wherever we're locked into previous desires or habits, uh, it makes it very difficult for us to resist the new choices. Um, or to engage in the new choices and resist the old temptations. And part of that is because of, you know, the, the inability of willpower to dominate when there are subconscious processes going on. Um, a very interesting thing from some research that I read is that, for example, when it comes to dieting, they, when they deprived, in an experiment, when they de deprived rats of food, the rats' uh, enjoyment, their pleasure from eating, increased. So what that means is that it, it tells us a, it tells us a lot. It points us in the direction of the relationship between willpower and impulse control, and the pleasure centers of the brain and how motivation works. So even when something that we're driven towards in a very primal way, which is you know food and replenishment and sustenance, for an animal like a rat, even if you deprive them of that, they, it, they, they are still engaged in the reward center of their brain to the outcome of, you know, wanting to make up for that loss, that deprivation. So the food is, you know, taken away from them and they, they, it strengthens the part of the brain that enjoys food more. So we know that. We know that when we, um, you know, when we're away from someone we love, we miss them, we're, you know, the fondness increases, etc. Um, when we can't have something, you know, we want it more. But that becomes a real problem when you look at an abstinence model. So, for example, with addiction... Um, a lot of the recovery programs and absence programs have a very high failure rate. And this relates to our topic today. So why is that? People presumably are motivated to change. They're bottomed out. They have, um, you know, seriously harmed, if not destroyed, the relationships within their family, um, financially, etc. They're motivated to change, but why is that change so difficult and why do those recovery programs have such a high failure rate? And it really does go back to the abstinence model and the, and the, the deprivation model. When we are in scarcity, when we're telling ourselves we can't have something, like, the, like that rat experiment, it, it triggers the desire part of our brain and the pleasure-seeking part of our brain into that scarcity mode and it makes you want it even more. So, for example, you know, there was a bookstore in Toronto uh, called, uh, I can't remember the exact name of it, it was a store all full of banned books. So as soon as you ban a book, it creates that, what's called cognitive dissonance, that it's like an advertising. You know, you want this. You don't have this, and you want this. You need this new iPhone or whatever it is, and we all fall prey to that. Now, where this comes into play very significantly um, with the research I've been I've been referencing is when it comes to willfulness, 
versus willingness. And the, the researcher that uh, I'm referring to is a psychologist named Ibrahim Sene from the University of Illinois. And he was exploring this, this conundrum about um, addicts wanting to make change. And that the whole point is, is that, you know, if you go into, say, a 12-step style recovery program, it's kind of putting the onus on you and your willingness and your motivation and self-reliance to get through the program and get better. But the problem is if you were that kind of a person, you wouldn't be in the state that you're in in the first place. So it sets up this problem that it puts the pressure on you again, stigmatizes your behavior. And it, in that model, you kind of surrender yourself to a higher power, et cetera, et cetera, in a community, and there's some accountability there from the community. But it's, it has to bypass that kind of broken self-reliance that you have. So what uh, uh, Mr. Sine uh, did in a series of experiments was explore the difference between trying to will yourself into doing something versus being, putting your mind and your brain into a mode of openness. And so just to sum up these experiments, essentially he set up these different uh, out, you know, uh, scenarios where, first of all, people weren't aware of what he was testing. So he would have them do some exercises with words or whatever. But the way he set up the exercise was the way to test what was going on. So, for example, in the first exercise, he got the uh, participants, one half of them, to think about the exercise that they were doing and, and what they might be getting into. And the other ones, he simply gave them an instruction, do these word puzzles. And very surprisingly, the group that was sort of thinking about whether they were going to do puzzles or what they might be about performed much better when they got to doing the exercises versus the control group who were given just a direct instruction, do these exercises. And it kept getting more and more interesting. So he elaborated that, and the next time he instructed a group, he said to one group, um, I want you to concentrate on the uh, intention that uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this exercise. I'm going to get it through. And to the other group, the experimental group, he said, you know, ask yourself the question, will I do this? Will I make this happen? And again, very surprisingly and tellingly, the group that was open-minded and was oriented towards the possibility that they would get the reward or have the outcome performed significantly better. And so it really is quite fascinating that when, you know, uh, the mind is more oriented towards positive reward versus avoiding negative outcome, it performs better. And this is, research is, is very significant to back up uh, what I've known, for, for example, in my own life, uh, you know, empirically from being an Aikido person and a teacher for, you know, 20 years now, that uh, the subconscious mind receives positive instruction. And we know this from other, re you know, well-established empirical research, but it receives positive instruction, um, really only positive instruction. Um, so that's why hypnosis works, for example. So when it comes to this research, um, it sets up this sort of dichotomy between the, the positive instruction, which is I see myself doing this and um, I'm going to get through this and 
um, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be taking responsibility for myself versus the willfulness, which is I, I have to do this, I will do this. It's sort of the instruction set that's more commanding and less positive. And what he found, for example, um, in, in that dichotomy is with a group that he got to do moderate exercise regime, that the first group, again, was more intrinsically motivated and kind of inspired, and they had better results. And the second group was who, whom were operating from, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go to the gym every day, ended up uh, being motivated more by not wanting to feel bad and guilty. But the problem is, is that sets you up. And in terms of addiction or negative habits, it is a real rebound effect. What you'll find is, for example, that it, you know, what gets us caught in bad habits in the first place is a negative feeling. So I feel bad about myself. So because I feel bad about myself, um, I want to A, B, C, reach out to A, food, B, substances, you know, addictive substances, drugs or alcohol, or C, behaviors, you know, sexual addiction and shopping, gambling, whatever. And what you're looking for there could be any range of outcomes, which is to escape, to numb out, to feel a sense of control, you know, like gambling is all about the possibility of winning and, and the, the, the risk and the high you get off of that, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is when you reach out to those behaviors that you don't, you're not setting yourself up to get the outcome you want, and so you fail. And then you feel bad about yourself, and you're right back at the start of that cycle. So even if we think that we're setting ourselves up to a positive goal, I'm going to go to the gym three days a week. If it's motivated by a negative instruction, I will do this, otherwise I'm going to feel really bad, we're still operating from that instruction set which says, I don't want to feel bad about myself. And so your old habits are going to creep in, which is, what do I do when I, when I feel bad about myself? Oh, you know, I eat uh, you know, a muffin or a donut or I sneak this because I feel like it's a little reward for myself. And I'm just going to, you know, we've all done that, right? I'm just, today I just don't feel like it. I'm going to reward myself by not going to the gym. And, oh, I'll just go tomorrow instead on my off day. And, and again, it's all about avoidance as opposed to let's see if I can get to the gym three days a week. I wonder if I could do that. And so the key here is to, to set habits in place versus determinations and instructions and that willfulness kind of approach, um, which is sort of a command set. And, you know, it's sort of like punishment. I remember reading years ago... Um, in a magazine editorial, it was a, it was a magazine um, called Muscle Media. I know it sounds kind of funny uh, coming from a person in my shoes, but back then I was really into, and I still am, into you know lifestyle and fitness and and, and holistic health. And uh, the owner of that magazine, you may be familiar with, is, was a man named Bill Phillips, and he was had a huge best-selling series of books called Body for Life, and it, it was a, a really well thought out. Um, lifestyle programs um, for fitness and health, based on your you know your week and and um, you know inter- different types of exercise and and dietary changes etc cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of it was very sensible, but he wrote a very interesting editorial about how he had had letters and contact from you know very successful people, people who were running you know big corporations and um, very high functioning. Uh, people, you know, up the ladder. 
of life, you know, in terms of that organizational world and success and that model, CEOs, etc. And and they said to him, you know, in my life I am highly accomplished. You know, I run this very complex organization with employees and multinational, this and that, or I'm dean of a university. I'm highly disciplined in other areas and I have success as a result. But in your program, I can't seem to make it work. Now, this program is very structured. It's very well laid out. There's lots of, you know, uh, success, success stories of people who have been obese and, you know, there's pictures of them in his book and it's, it's very motivating. But the point being that people are functioning from high, you know, self-discipline and still fail. And so he wrote something quite brilliant and said, um, discipline is not what gets you through. It's habits. So it really is about putting one foot in front of the other and following through. And as we know from studies of people who are very successful in life, it's not that they have extraordinarily uh, higher willpower or, or even motivation. It's that they just keep moving forward despite the obstacles. And that's what we really need to do to make change in our life is steady progress. So here's some very practical tips as the program's winding down to an end today. Make practical changes in your life. Set out a plan. How are you going to do it? An action plan. Make it easy. Make it rewarding to yourself and, and so you can experience the positive outcome of a small reward and build that in. So I'm going to go for a moderate you know, walk or I'm going to walk to work instead of you know, driving or take the bus or I'm going to take the stairs instead of the elevator. Simple things. Build it into your life incrementally. And what you do is you start to replace the habit, first of all, in your subconscious mind of it's all or nothing that I've got to become this new person. It just doesn't work. Secondly, you replace that habit of, I must do this, you know, that that stern inner voice. And by and by, these things become part of your life. It takes about four weeks for habits to take root in our our, uh, system and in our life. But as you see the results, you're motivated because, oh, that was easy. Try something else, you know make it a little harder for ourselves. And we we all experience that with exercise, et cetera, et cetera. So make it concrete, write it down, make it small, make it easy, make it fun. You can share it with somebody else, which also is very motivating. Um, it's, you know, you get someone else to be part of the process. Um, but planning it out makes a big difference. Uh, because it's there in front of you and you have something to refer to. If you have a friend involved, it's great because they're going to cheer you on. But you really need to wire in that experience with yourself of being your own cheerleader, of being in control and not being motivated by feeling bad, but being set towards the kind of person that you would really like to be. Here's the best advice I can give you in a practical sense as we wind down the show today, and that is this. When you find yourself at a choice point, whether it's a piece of cake, going to the gym, calling your family more, um, eat, you know, buying healthier food at the supermarket, putting some money in your savings account, whatever it is, if you find yourself prone to falling back on old habits, and it does take effort and it does take a little bit of time and you know, steady progress, ask yourself this question. What would... The, my highest self. So in other words, the future self, 
that we've wondered if we can really become. Will I ever become that person who's 30 pounds lighter or, you know, got an advanced degree or um, meditates every day or whatever it is? What would that higher self do in this moment? What would my highest self, my most evolved self, my most conscious, present, positively motivated self do in this moment? And you'll be very, very surprised at how clarifying that is. You're really relying on your own inner coach, your own mentor, to make the best decision possible. Now, the first thing, of course, is to be really clear about what your values really are. What is my highest self? So my uh, my inspiration to you is rather than stern resolutions, which, you know, it's great to make plans and to set new habits for yourself, but the, the primary thing I would suggest for the new year is to begin with your value system. Draw a circle like a pie chart and divide it up and look at your values, spiritual, physical, monetary, relational, emotional, and get a visual representation of what's most important to you. Then you can write down, if you're more of a language person, write down in a bullet list or a numbered list. But once you get clear on those, then you have something to go back to and refer to. Okay, so if I'm someone who's very health-oriented, then what would my highest self do? Make the healthy choice. And you're working towards being that person you've always wanted to be. And by and by, you become that person. So I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Uh, I Once again, I'm talking out into the ether. I, I hope you're listening out there. Um, I encourage you to call in and join the conversation. Um, I know today's, you know, have a day off for a lot of people and just to sleep in, etc. But I hope you're enjoying a positive start to 2013 and that I've been a part of it. Please tune in again on Thursday. For those of you listening, thank you for coming and visiting the Archive Show. Take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy your life. We'll see you next time on The Mind Whisperer. I'm Michael Gordon.